0: Changing Reels, A bi-weekly podcast that aims to change the conversation on diversity in cinema one reel at a time. We do so by revisiting, overlooked and underappreciated films. My name is Courtney Small. Today I'm joined by the wonderful Kristen Lopez, whose work has been published in numerous publications, including The Hollywood Reporter and RogerEbert.com, to name a few. Kristen, how are you doing today?
1: I'm good.
0: I'm going to preface this by saying you forced me to have an uncomfortable conversation with my son based on your film choice today.
1: Oh, okay. At least it was a movie in black and white, not awkward comedy. conversation. Conversation about a
0: modern movie. No, no, it was actually it was the whole conversation was about why were films in black and white back then.
1: Oh, okay.
0: He didn't want to go to bed, so I said, Alright, you can watch a few minutes of the the film that I was watching that we're gonna be discussing later. And instead of asking me questions about some of the stuff that was going on in the film, which he did, he was more mesmerized by this notion of black and white, and were people in black and white back then? He's only he's only seven, and this was like
1: the,
0: the very first black and white film he sees, so I was like, Oh, I never thought we'd have to have this conversation no, so early
1: <laughs> you gotta you gotta get him started on that good classic film education when they're young it's the perfect time
0: that's true he didn't run away so that's a a, a good start but i think also he didn't want to go to bed so his choices were were pretty you know, limited
1: you do what you got to okay you take what you can get
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly for those of you who regularly listen to the show and maybe missed a few episodes my regular co-host andrew hathaway he's on hiatus for the year he's, uh, he's going to focus on his writing and he's also producing a video game which i guess is due out later this year uh, but if you still want to support his stuff you can can visit his patreon account over at canstopthemovies.com, and also if you're feeling generous stop by the modern superior website contribute to their patreon account because they're the podcasting network that hosts our show we like to start off each episode by highlighting one short film that you can watch online for free our short film today is entitled vows and it was directed by tal zagriba based on a true story the film focuses on amos who goes home with the intention of ending his marriage but walks into a a Prize renewal of his vows part. Kristen, I picked this film because I thought it fit nicely with the the feature that you had recommended. So do you want to kick us off on your thoughts with vows?
1: Yeah, this was interesting in that I'm not really sure if I liked it. It starts out with an interesting conceit, which is that this is a guy who's going to tell his wife that he's leaving her for a younger woman, presumably, even though his wife looks incredibly younger in contrast to him. Maybe he's just an older-looking actor. I don't know. He could be like 25 for all I know. No, he's not. But, you know, and, and there's some sort of long-standing relationship that has gone on between him and this other woman, and it just happens to... Be that he walks in on this anniversary party, we're kind of left only knowing what has been presented to us. And so immediately I was like, he doesn't know that it's his anniversary in general, you know? I mean, whether you know there's a party or not, it's obviously meant to be a surprise, but really, you know, you're gonna wait till around your anniversary to leave your wife, like kind of a dick move. I mean, it was already a dick move, but it's even worse now. And then the movie all of a sudden switches perspective to to be from his wife's point of view she comes to this realization that he's he hasn't told her he's going to leave her but she knows that that's the implication and having to pretend for the rest of the short that she is happy and i wasn't really sure what we were supposed to be getting out of that because we're never really told how she feels we just see her reaction which is a mix of like horror and sadness and you see that everybody around her is very happy. It's it's almost like an art piece, you know, where you're constantly trying to wonder what the characters are thinking. And that's all well and good in a short film that's, you know, maybe nine minutes, but I wanted more. I felt like it needed more. More discussion, more of her internal thought process. If it was gonna be from her perspective, I needed that established right away, because it feels very abrupt, especially with the emphasis on close-ups of her face. So, I wasn't finding the message of this one as nuanced as, like, last week's short.
0: That's interesting, because Everything that you found problematic is what I loved about this short. It's, in terms of the timing, I agree that around the anniversary, we don't know exact, the exact date, is is a dick move. But the film sets it up based on the, the brief conversation he has with the mistress, who I didn't think was that much younger than him. But I guess both actresses, in comparison to the lead actor, do do look younger. But she makes reference to, you know, him going through with it this time, you know? And you, you see him at the very beginning of the film rehearsing, and you, you get the impression that he's tried to build up to the, this moment before and it just didn't have the courage. And I interpreted it as it was getting close to his anniversary time, and he wanted to break it off, so he wasn't anticipating this party, which I'm assuming happened prior to it. And I like that we're given a a snapshot of this couple, and yet through that we are left to ponder so much about them. And he comes in, there's that moment where it's the silence of him in the bathroom, and you're like, well, is he going to go through with it? And then once the wife realizes, What's going on It really becomes About her Because the, the main focus Has been him And he's You know Had this whole affair Going on for a while now With this other woman With his wife not knowing a thing, and just that whole shock and having such a life-changing event happen with such a public background going on, and even though she can read it on his face, he's still willing to, to go through with the, the renewal of the vows and put on the show for all the family and friends, and I thought with her, it was almost like, not a, a walking death sentence, but that walk up to the, the party when the way how the um, the director kind of blurs out everything around her and she's she's no longer listening to the words because she's in shock she's still processing all of this and then having to try and you know pretend everything's okay when she's now taking in this for the first time. I I thought it worked well.
1: Yeah, I mean I I like what they do with in in terms of showing I called it, I considered it like an internal scream. Like she's just waiting to like have this huge breakdown. She has to tamp it all down. It's like waiting for a stick of dynamite to explode. I definitely like that. I guess I just maybe it's my own resonance with, you know, relationship dramas. I just I think I expected a Bit more depth. I felt I just needed a little bit more history into who these people are, but I understand the reasons for everything. So I can't necessarily fault it and say it's poorly explained because I think there's a definite reason for how it is. I,
0: I agree with you on that. And this was one where I think it, it would work wonderfully as a as a feature film. It's because again, you get all that extra history and you see where, you, where they go from there. And in my mind, I was thinking this is going to get even messier than, than what we're seeing now. I wouldn't be shocked if she kind of blew up during... The whole oh, yeah. ceremony, but considering how fresh it was, maybe she she wouldn't have done that. And the, the way how this film plays with silence and still manages to give us enough of a story that we get at least a grasp on these characters and how they are reacting to the situation, I think is is great. And it, it had me also thinking about the feature in, that we're gonna be discussing in a few minutes, just about how the men in both cases are are so different. And uh, again, we'll we'll speak in more. Detail about that later, but there's there's a moment when Amos is going in, and he and his son is fixing the tie, and he looks really sad sack, and even he he can't even muster the courage to to even say the words that he recited to her. You know, he's just kind of there, looking at his lighter, trying to think of how he's going to do it, and should he do it at this time? And it's she she knows him so well that she just reads his his mannerisms and, and it's basically speaking for him, saying all the stuff that he's not brave enough to say. Yet when everything comes out, he's he goes back to trying to be the life of the party. With, it was you know just an interesting dichotomy in terms of the way how that character was was crafted. Whereas the the wife, we don't get to see too much of her in joyous times. We just see this bomb being dropped on her and how she has to try and now navigate this unfamiliar terrain whereas he's like, well, that's off my chest now. You know, it's still going to be awkward, but hey, let's just get through the night and then we'll deal with it in the morning.
1: Yeah, I, when I think that this, as well as the, the film we're talking about, talk about how women are often forced to contain their emotions at the risk of being labeled emotional or hysterical so the fact that she doesn't have this big explosive blow up is really authentic because i think most women are told nobody wants to see that you know it's the stigma that women are expected to be that way so the movie is showing us the more authentic response which is that we naturally just don't react
0: it's funny because i want to see a bit more uh, from the the mistress standpoint as well because outside of just her being the other woman you get a little air of her of her confidence but even as he's getting out of the car you get the sense that she still doesn't quite trust him like she doesn't believe that he is going to go through with it you know right this
1: obviously happened several times
0: exactly exactly and again there's a lot of interesting nuances with the women that if this if Um, director decides to to expand it into a feature i would love to just see where he takes those characters and especially how the other woman kind of comes back into things once everything is revealed yeah we've been dancing around it and i think we should jump into the feature we're going to take a quick moment to change the reels and then we'll be back with our feature film of the day Our main film for today is The Bigamist, a 1953 drama directed by Ida Lupino, who also plays Phyllis in the film. Uh, the story revolves around Harry and Eve Graham, a couple in San Francisco who are trying to adopt a baby. However, when the adoption agency does a background check on Harry, the lead agent discovers that Harry has been leading a double life, one that includes a second wife, the aforementioned Phyllis, and a baby in Los Angeles. Kristen, you had suggested throwing in some classic films in our in our canon and I'm grateful that you did because this was a, a brand new film for me and I absolutely loved it. So do you want to share some of your thoughts on the film?
1: Sure. Your thoughts are, I think, about how most people respond to Ida Lupino, especially especially movies she directed, which are not easily available. This is one of the few that I think is actually going to get a Blu-ray release finally in the next couple of months. But, you know, it's not surprising to hear most people say like, oh, I, I just watched a movie with her and I loved it. I celebrated Ida Lupino turned 100 this year. She's unfortunately no longer with us. But it was her centennial. And so I started to watch every Ida Lupino movie that I could get my hands on because I had not seen a lot of her stuff. And I was blown away both by her acting and her directing. She is one of the rare studio era female directors. She directed, I think it five or six features in her entire acting career. One, two, three, four, five. Yeah, six. Six features. This was her last film for almost a decade. She, She did one more film in 1966 that she directed and then she stopped. And Ida Lupino is fantastic. She's a a unique person in classic Hollywood history. And everything she does is gold. Not everything, but she's usually gold in everything. And a lot of her movies deal with kind of trapped women who are trapped by circumstance or their own decision making or situations or men. A lot of times it's men, but it's usually really hot men. Unlike Edmund O'Brien here, who is not hot. Sorry, but he's not. So I I really enjoyed this movie. I don't think it's as shocking. This was supposed to be distributed by RKO, so... I think it's very in line with what was being made in the 50s, this romantic melodrama. It's got a little sauciness to it in terms of bigamy, and they're not presenting people. There's not there's not heroes and villains in this movie. This, you're just dealing with people, people who make bad decisions, but are not necessarily punished for it by, like, being killed um, or something. Uh, this is not nearly as, as um, shocking, I think, as, as her 1950 movie Outrage, which is about rape. But um, this is a good one. This a, I think this is a good beginning to Ida Lupino's career as a director. If you've ever wanted to like see her as a director and you're like, which of the six films should I watch? This is a good intro because it's probably the most Hollywood.
0: As you were sp- speaking, I was just writing down outrage because, yes, this was my first introduction to um, her work, especially her her work as a director. And I'm very intrigued in diving into the other ones that she's – done it
1: Never Fear is about polio. It's from 1949. It's not that great. It's 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 a worthy first time director movie. You know, like you feel it's a first time film. Outrage is is uh, again still one of the more interesting films about rape culture, particularly in the 50s. I've not seen Hard Fast and Beautiful yet, which is hard, very hard to find. The Hitchhiker is great, if only because Ida Lupino was one of the only women to direct a film noir in the history of noir. Oh wow! And then I have not seen Trouble with Angels, which is. Uh, I know a Hayley Mills movie from the late 60s. So I'm not expecting like deep social commentary with that one.
0: No, but what struck me about this is even with the the DVD that I have, and had, had I known it was coming out on Blu-ray, I might have uh, held out, but it had the, in the title, it was the, the A was red. You know, I was like, oh, this is going to be the Scarlet Letter. It's going to be a really scandalous, uh, salacious film. And then I, as I was watching it, what struck me about it most was the weird sense of compassion it has for for all the characters but especially harry and partly because harry's the maker of all of his own problems he he wants to be very much be the you know the good husband or the nice guy but then we'll Continually make bad decisions. You know, you know your wife's out of town, and but she wants to have a baby. It's like, okay, I'll I'll go through the procedures, even though I've already started this friendship with this other woman. Oh, but this other woman needs me. I'm gonna ask her to marry her, even though I'm already married. And well, it all sort out in the in the end. And it was that weird. He's he's a well-meaning guy to the well no he's doing a lot of bad things but he's doing it with good intentions that i found really fascinating especially the way how the the film plays it up um the the agent was it mr jordan at yeah. one at one point said, "I despise you and I pity you. Don't want to shake your hand, but I, I almost want to wish you luck." And I felt a lot of that as I was watching the film, just kind of going through those those various emotions. Especially he asked Phyllis her hand in marriage, and I was like, "Oh, buddy, you know now you've really you've really stepped in it." And obviously he needed to step in it for the the plot to to unfold the way it did, but it was, I don't know, it was such a a fascinating debate that was going on within him, and then the way how she presents both women, you know, at one point Phyllis is, uh, I think it was Phyllis who apologized for, for kicking him out the house when she thought that he might be cheating with another woman, not realizing that she is the other woman. And even Eve at one point, because again, it's the, it's the 50s, so she, when she decides that she wants to have a kid, she kind of apologizes for taking so long to decide that she thought that might have pushed him away. And it's like, no, you guys did nothing wrong. It, it was all hairy, but again, it was a sign of the times.
1: Yeah, there's there's a lot of back and forth with this movie that I, I kind of struggle with, because it's not necessarily written by Ida Lupino. It's actually written by call Your young which is very interesting because call Your young was married to both leading ladies he married ida lupino i think in the late 40s and they actually started their their production company which is called the players that produced this and then he they divorced and then i think a year or two later while they were making this movie i think right in like 52 i think it is he married joan fontaine So I find it kind of funny that it's written by a guy who, while not committing bigamy, did marry both. He's essentially the Harry in this movie. And I do think that leads to some of the issues that I have with the film. It is the 50s. So you have to mitigate how these characters are presented, particularly the women. So like Joan Fontaine's Eve is presented as the more business savvy she's more interested in in the business and that comes at the expense of her relationship with her husband there's a really telling moment where he calls her and he says very bluntly i cheated on you and she says oh haha that's that's great you know what happened like she's not taking it seriously because she trusts him but you almost want him to be upset. He's upset because she's not upset, which I find to be really, you know, an intriguing emotion that he he has. A lot of the issues that he has, I think you would expect a female character to have. So I I start to wonder if maybe that's why I'm reacting that way. But for 1953, when you're dealing with the production code, which expected certain things, the fact that Harry is not struck down, by the hand of God for committing bigamy that that he does get punished, but it's not a punishment where anybody has to give their life. And at the end of the movie, you realize these are all good people. You know, it's just they make really crappy decisions, especially Harry. You know, that he's kind of the creator of his own fate. It goes back to that noir. You know, this is almost very noirish in its concept of like, man is the creator of his own destruction. Harry is definitely the creator of his own destruction. And I think the most Shocking thing for me about The bigamist more than anything else, is and again, part of it only really works if you know how how the code and the Breen Office really can like throttled movies in terms of sexuality. And I almost are to wonder if it's why RKO dropped this movie like a hot potato before production began. Because there is no denying that him and Phyllis have had sex, they have a child. Um, and the fact that the movie Outside of not, I mean, they never overtly say, like, remember that time we slept together? Um, but there is no denying that these two have slept together, that he knowingly did it knowing that he had a wife. She, being a woman of the 50s who was not supposed to put out without a ring, did it anyway. I mean, I'm like, I'm waiting for a bloodbath right right off of that, because that's what movies had to dictate, to take pass back in those days, um, and I love that the movie doesn't go theatrical, doesn't go for shock. It goes for just this really somber, sad tale of like a bunch of people that love each other. Much like when we talked to Professor Marston, you know, you're almost thinking, like, maybe these people could find a way to coexist in this, like, polyamorous relationship.
0: That would be, I think, a little too much for that, era.
1: Yeah, yeah, it definitely wouldn't have worked. But, you know, I think think, uh, maybe they'd they'd have given Marston a head nod. They'd have been like, you know what, we understand, man, we know.
0: But I think I think you're onto something though because I remember at the very end of the film where they have that moment where the the women get to see each other for the first time and they kind of give each other a look of of sadness and pity. It's not really hatred and, it, and you almost get the sense of them saying, "Why didn't he just come out earlier and we could have maybe talked it out or something." You know, because as you said, the film really portrays that they're all good people who are just caught up in this circumstance. And and with Phyllis, I found her really interesting because she comes off as a as a rather strong independent character. And as, you know, as you said, they they clearly have sex because they have a child, but they draw that out, the build up to it for for so long. And then you think, well, okay, maybe the the child is going to come after marriage but then you find out that she gets pregnant beforehand and, and when he goes looking for her and the woman says you know I forget the exact phrasing but it was like oh I'm, I'm glad you're here she she needs you you know you, you need to be around and even when he first asked for her hand in marriage she's like you know I don't want I didn't want it to be this way I don't want to trap you you know this was not my intention but if you will have me I'm willing to be there there's always that kind of remembering the, the era even though she's the one who got knocked up and it took two people to, to make this baby, she doesn't want to be a burden on, on Harry. She doesn't want to, to ruin his life. You know, she she will go on. It's very interesting, the the politics of that time. And one of the things that I, I like that you mentioned earlier was about how this film is very much a noir in its tropes. And from the very beginning, when they're at the agency and they're speaking with Mr. Jordan, and Mr. Jordan says, well, I'm going to have to do a, a thorough background check. And within the first... 3 minutes. You see Harry get that really nervous look on his eyes and I don't know what he was expecting, but I'm sure back then adoption agencies at least did a minimal bit of background checking. Uh and he he nearly freezes and that's the first tell sign that oh, maybe there's something going on here and as Mr. Jordan's doing his investigation, you're slowly piecing the clues together, you know. People say, "Oh, well, we don't know what hotel he checks into or he'll make a reference to his wife saying, "Oh, I don't worry, I had" these clothes stashed away somewhere else and you start to put the little the mystery together and even when he finally catches up with him in his LA home the baby wails in the background so the cover's blown and now we've got to put the, the, the final pieces to this mystery together Like it, it's a really well made film and it's it's surprisingly a lot more complex than I thought it was going to be
1: Yeah, I think what Ida does so well is if you watch a lot and it almost benefits there, there's a real benefit to knowing hollywood history in this movie oddly enough you know and if you watch as many movies then you you're aware of the genre specifically in like the 40s and 50s of like the the shamed single mother you know every every major actress played this character that had a baby and has to like give it up and watch it being cared for by another woman i think of like betty davis and the old maid you know mary astor i think did it this this whole shaming of women for having sex and having a child out of wedlock and, and watching this, you know, 90-minute tragedy of a woman having to bemoan her fate for being sexual. And here, when, when uh, Edmund Gwen's character goes to the door and you hear that baby cry, the look on Edmund O'Brien's face is like, oh my God, I have to wear this shame that I have a a baby. It's the feeling that women have been feeling, you know, through millennia. I love that she kind of turns that on its head. And I think a lot of what I appreciate about this movie is if you know the characters that Ida Lupino tended to play in the 40s and 50s, it makes you appreciate her character Phyllis more intensely because she often played women who were very lonely and that's a lot of what Phyllis is as a character you know Harry Harry meets her on the the tour bus the Hollywood tours and she says that she just rides them so that she can be around people and i think uh, somebody if if my mother's listening she's going to roll her eyes when i bring up this movie i think i think of a lot of comparisons between this and another ida Lupina movie which is called out of the fog it's a, it's a noir and i think i think she did it After this movie? No, she did it 10 years before this movie. That's right, because John Garfield was dead by this point. But it's it's a film noir where she plays a woman who is working class and proceeds to fall in love with a gangster who can offer her a way out of her dreary existence. Or she can have the nice guy who offers her, like, stability in a home. And you're thinking, like, no, everybody's trying to tell her to go for stability. She doesn't want that. And so I think a lot of her characters were often torn between this desire for wanting a different life and then being hobbled by circumstance. So, like, here is Phyllis. She wants a husband and companionship. But at the same time, she's been broken hearted before. She understands that she's kind of got this depressed mien, and that she's not perky. She's not blonde. She's not statuesque. She's not Joan Fontaine. And, and I think she, her character feels that that's limiting to her.
0: I I saw on I think it was Letterboxd that someone had put as if someone would cheat on Joan Fontaine and I don't know watching this film I was like I think I'm team Ida Lupino on this one you know sorry to all the Joan Fontaine fans she's she's wonderful but I could see why Harry would would go that route. What I found fascinating though especially let's get back to the the loneliness is how well they draw that out because Harry talks about being a, a traveling salesman and how you're on the road a lot and loneliness is what brought him and Phyllis together and essentially that was the main thing that they had both lonely and he knew that they could kind of build a friendship and at least be around each other but there's also the sense of loneliness in his marriage even though his marriage seemed happy because again he's on the road all the time she's working in the office and then Eve's father falls ill so then she's gone for for several months as well so even when he's back home he's still by himself and there's something truthful to the way that Lupina approaches the notion of loneliness in this film and how some a lot of times relationships don't necessarily start with dreamy eyes toward one another it's just it's casual conversation it's hey this person brought a smile to my face for the first time in how many days, I thought that was really really well done. What did you think of Mr. Jordan in and his role in this in this film because there was times where I thought he went above and beyond what his role would be as a agent for the adoption worker, agency because yeah. he, he even mentioned at one point towards the end when after Harry has spilled his guts and he's like are you gonna take me to jail you're gonna call the cops and then Mr. Jordan's like well no that's not my job my job is just to find out what goes on in your life now I know that's up for you now to, to deal with the rest of it but for a good portion of the film it, it did feel like he was playing the role of a cop
1: well I think it's you know you brought up the whole relationship and the, the loneliness angle here and I think so much of what makes this movie work is is knowing what what the 50s was like, this kind of time of economic prosperity, this move to the suburbs, away from the cities. And you also were dealing with women who had had tasted the workforce and then been forced to go back into this kind of cult of domesticity. And there was a lot of this need to, to chase the dollar and at the same time we're coming out of this time of of war the war had been you know almost 10 years ended by this point but there's still this concept of not really knowing people anymore you know that you you've come back to this new landscape where it's easier to hide out it's easier to be ignored and i think lupino is kind of kind of saying screw you to the concept of the fairy tale relationship and that's where I think Edmund Gwen comes along, because most people would have known, and they reference this in the movie, which I think is funny, Edmund Gwen was best known to people for playing Santa Claus in Miracle on 34th Street. And so watching his character investigate this man and realize that his his relationship, his fairy tale relationship is, is not true, and he's carrying on with this other woman, they disappoint Santa Claus. Like, that is the most horrible like heart-wrenching point and I think that that's kind of Lupino's sly like the fairy tale is bullshit you know this whole concept of like people fall in love at the end of the movie they kiss and you you believe that they're going to be together forever that's not how this works sometimes you can be a happy family man and you get the itch to go out and find something else whether you're willing to admit it or not
0: well, in case my wife is listening, I don't agree with that last <laughs> point there. Um, I mean, and I, I, say- I completely get what you're, what you're, what you're saying there, and it's, it's funny because when you're talking about the, the Dick to Edmund Gwyn, I was also thinking back to when they're on the, the tour bus, and you're getting some sly jabs at c- celebrity culture and how Phyllis is so uninterested in any of the, the stories that the either the tour bus guide is saying or that, um. Edmund O'Brien's Harry is is trying to tell her. She's like, ah, oh, you know, this. This romantic notion of Hollywood is doing absolutely nothing for me.
1: And I think that that's really what her work as a director wanted to espouse. It wanted to rip off the trappings of Hollywood, this this fairy tale glamour factory that dabbled in fantasy. And she really, I mean, if you look at all of her films for the mo the ones that she had, you know, control over that she produced, she really wanted to look at hard hitting things. She wanted to look at handicap. Relationships in the 19 in the late 40s and and how we treated disabled people. She wanted to look at rape culture. She wanted to look at the concept of you know celeb hard fast and beautiful is about celebrity. I mean it's about athletes, but it's this this mad drive to achieve and how when you're a celebrity the people that you love don't really care about you and they just want to profit off of you so i think i think that really that whole section where they're kind of making fun of hollywood is really saying like this is the type of picture that i want to make this is what people want to see and they don't really want to see these fantasy movies i think it's why noir Became such a big deal in the film that people were disenchanted with the fairy tale that Hollywood was shoving down their throats, and they embraced noir that that looked at the cold, harsh realities of of the world.
0: Was this a modest hit for her, or a, a big hit? Because she, she said she only directed about what six films six or so.
1: Films, yeah. None of I think only Trouble with Angels. Let me see. Is Hard, Fast, and Beautiful actually produced? Uh, it is produced, it's distributed by RKO. So, this was actually, I think, distributed by her company. So, this was not a huge hit. This was a very little seen film. RKO was supposed to produce this, but they pulled out for reasons that were unexplained. I, I think it might have had to do with subject matter. So I did self-distributed this, which in the 50s was very hard.
0: To think that she directed this film with this subject matter, and and especially in the era that she did, and also distributed it herself, that's a huge accomplishment. I wish I had known a lot more about her before, prior to seeing this film, but...
1: I, I mean, and it's funny, the, the movie got mediocre reviews. Bosley Crowther from the New York Times, I don't think saw the movie because he called it quote just an average melodrama about cops. Yeah, Bosley, that's what it's about. But I mean the movie-
0: about wait, about cops? Cops. Uh, oh okay.
1: Yeah. And since then I mean it's been rediscovered now. It's on the thousand and one movie You Must See Before You Die. And a lot of people compare it to the work of like Nicholas Ray, which really makes sense. You think, like, if the guy who directed Rebel Without a Cause had made this movie, it probably would have gotten more attention. So, so yeah, it is, it is depressing that, that this movie didn't get a lot of love. But I think it's because it was ahead of its time. I mean, there's, we didn't talk about the trial in depth, but there's a great moment at the end where the judge of all people says that if Phyllis had just been his mistress, it would have been okay. And yes, I, I yep. think that that sums up the movie. I don't know if that was in Call Your Young's script and RKO read that. I was like, nope, we're not putting it out. But I mean, that, and especially with Hollywood, I mean, you watch that in the concept of like Me Too and Time's Up today. I mean, those are still things that we're still grappling with is that, you know, if the guy just makes her his his mistress and has a second family with her and supports her, like, that's his business. But the minute you get, you know, married to another person, then it becomes a legal issue. It's a really weird dichotomy. And again, in Hollywood, where you had so many people getting married three, four, five times, mind you, they were getting divorced before, you know, is it any different? I think Ida's really making you question the concept of marriage and the concept of relationships.
0: And that's that same scene, it's also how they referenced it, too, because the Drudge says, you know, if it was a mistress, we would all just wink and nod, you know, and go on with our day. But it's because he gave her an honorable life. That we now choose to destroy him, and you think back to that area and just Hollywood's history, and you you look at people like Sinatra and a lot of the Rat Pack, and how they were praised for being playboys, whereas someone like Marilyn Monroe or any, name any female actress that was married more than once, and it was you know the scarlet letter for for a lot of them.
1: Yeah and and I think it's still we still see it today. I mean the double standard there still exists with with men, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio has a new model on his arm every month and that's just his lifestyle, but you know any one of these, you know, young teen girls dates more Taylor Swift, you know, dates too many guys and obviously she's crazy, obviously she has a problem. It hasn't gone away. And if anything, I would love more movies like this that just shy away from sensationalizing and just look at, like, human relationships and that human beings are flawed, human beings are messy. I'm still not buying that either one of these beautiful women would give Edmund O'Brien a tumble, I'm sorry, Edmund O'Brien is just, like, I don't get him. He's discount Raymond Burr to me, but, uh...
0: He's not, he's not the worst <laughs> thing. On, and and again, he seems like a very decent guy. He's an
1: average guy, and I think you need that. You need a guy that doesn't look like Cary Grant or Frank Sinatra, where you would expect him to have a woman in every port. So, I mean, I get why she did it, but I'm still like, Edmund O'Brien, really?
0: <laughs> well, if it was Edmund Gwynn, would that be better?
1: No, but, I mean, I I don't know. I was just thinking, like, they're two beautiful women. Like, we couldn't have gotten Cary Grant. Like, was he not? Well, Cary Grant probably would have done it. He turned down more things than he took.
0: Yeah, but I think you, you needed that kind of every every guy Yeah, you need real
1: every man, like average Joe American type of thing.
0: If it was Cary Grant, you would watch this filming and think, only two wives, Cary? I'm sure there's a third or yep, fourth yep. <laughs> hanging around. Whereas here, you're like, okay, I I, I believe that this guy as bumbling as he is, would get himself into these situations. Uh, One thing I will say, though, is we haven't really talked too much about it from a technical standpoint, but this film is just really well made. There's one of my favorite shots. It reminded me also when I was watching Vows in terms of the reaction was when Eve, John Fontaine's character, finally discovers what's been going on. She gets that call, and I think she's on the balcony or something. So you get her just kind of reaction uh, and you know you don't hear exactly what she's being told but just from her facial gestures and stuff you 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 see you know that she's getting the the bad news that we've we've known about f- while watching this entire film and then see how the camera kind of slowly moves away from her on the balcony gets the framing and then just gives you enough of the room that you can see the little photo of uh Harry on on the nightstand you know just a nice effective way of showing that he his presence, even if he's not physically there, everything that he's done is just going to reverberate for all of these people for a long time. And there's there's moments where um, Harry and Phyllis are out on a date, or Eve surprised him on his anniversary because he couldn't make it home, and he decides to take her out on the town, which was, a, again, another stupid move, but just the way how she frames a lot of those shots I, um, I thought was just really well done, and you know, it's... It's not a groundbreaking film in terms of like the angles and stuff by any means, but it's it's just it works very well, especially for the subject matter.
1: I will say there's a reason it looks very good. This was actually the last movie before he switched to television that um, George Diskant, who played who was the cinematographer, did. This was the last film. I'm starting to wonder if that was a, there was a reason for that. But he uh, was the DP for. Um, A lot of really great noirs um, before this, and including an Ida Lupino movie. He had been um, the DP on Ida Lupino's On Dangerous Ground, which is another really good movie people should watch. And then he also did The Narrow Margin, which is probably one of my favorite noirs. And then he also did another Ida Lupino movie called Beware My Lovely, which is really intriguing. And then he did Kansas City Confidential. So, I mean, you're you're dealing with a guy who knows the shadows and the interplay of light, all this stuff. I mean, he direct he was made was responsible for making so many movies look fantastic. Um, you know, he did a he was the director of photography for a, a Gene Harlow movie. So, you know, he's he he knows his stuff, and he knew noir, so I think that's why it just it looks so fantastic.
0: I have a a little notepad that I was just writing down the list of movies that you've been referencing that I <laughs> that I need to see, and it's already starting to get murky with all the scribbles. So this oh, is a lot of.
1: I'm sorry, you have you have quite the cavalcade of riches.
0: No, no, this is this is great. This is the the gift that keeps on giving. So I, I'm definitely happy that you um, offered up this film as as a is a possible one to talk about. And judging by the list of films that I have in my little notepad in front of me, I'm gonna be diving into a lot more classic cinema it's, it's than I have. It. Been.
1: It's worth it. Because
0: <laughs> you know I I see a lot of the I guess the well-regarded ones, but it's the gems like these that I need to start looking for a little more.
1: Yeah, it's, it's often the, the actors that aren't, you know, not to disparage them, because I love them. You know, I think everybody tends to look at, like, oh, the Cary Grants and the Audrey Hepburns and the Marilyn. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, watching, watching Ida Lupino movies for a month straight like I did, I realized that, like, I want to champion her because she played so many, you know, so many interesting characters. And I think watching this... Most people would be shocked to know that Ida Lupino started out playing Daffy Dames in British movies. She's actually British. She played like platinum blonde heiresses in Britain. And some of the movies are very funny, but it's a far cry from the Ida that we know in this. So I just I think all of that is really, really interesting.
0: That is that is wonderful. I can't even picture her as a platinum mom but yeah you know what watch, no, more
1: uh, watch uh and uh, strangely enough a lot of her movies are available to watch on youtube um but if you if you look up on youtube i think it's called i lived with you um which is an ivor novello film it's again really cheeky for 1930s it's a 1936 comedy and she plays like this platinum blonde kind of like moron who's just looking for a wealthy husband it's a, it's very different
0: again another one to add to the list uh i think that's all i had to say about this film
1: i think we i think we did pretty good go watch more item
0: if you haven't seen the bigamist watch the bigamist and also go watch more item films i'm i'm gonna take that advice to heart uh kirsten where can people find you
1: i am available uh on twitter at journeys underscore film as well as a Bucket of other places. If you want to hear more about my classic film stuff, I'll throw it out there. Um, I review classic films and journeys in classicfilm.com, as well as do a classic film podcast called Ticklish Business, which is at ticklishbusiness.podbean.com. So if you want to get more classic film knowledge. I have it to give.
0: You can find me on Twitter at our Twitter account at Changing AC, or you can reach me directly on Twitter at Small Mind. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy the conversation, please take a moment to rate and review the show, especially on iTunes, because every review helps and every five-star rating helps get our conversation about diversity to the masses. And also remember, you can change the conversation on diversity one reel at a time. It's been a presentation of the Modern Superior Media Network.